All right, well, Job's three friends came to comfort him, but they ended up accusing him. Job's suffering was compounded by their harsh words. So insults are added to injury. Slander is piled on top of pain. No compassion, just heartless jabs. So these three friends in this round dig in their heels and they double down. The pattern that we see in round one, that we saw in round one, continues now in round two. After each friend speaks, Job replies. And Job's argument goes something like this. He says, I agree with you that God is just and God is powerful, but I'm not a, I'm not a hypocrite. I'm not a secret sinner. I reject your arguments that my suffering is due to some sort of specific sin in my life. I want to argue my case before God, but I can't find him, is what he said in, in chapter 9. But I will trust him, even when I can't understand. So my question for us this morning is to think, do we trust God? What will keep us steadfast to the end? Where then is our hope? Now back in chapter 13, Job proclaimed, though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. So Job believed that God would vindicate him ultimately in eternity, if not in this life. And then we saw these beautiful, hope-filled words pondering resurrection in chapter 14. If a man dies, shall he live again? So he's saying like, if God will remember him, if he will live again, and he says, all the days of my service, I would wait till my renewal should come. You would call and I would answer. This is a beautiful picture of the steadfast love of God and resurrection hope. So it's kind of like Job is coming up for a breath after struggling underwater. His hope is building, and yet this hope keeps slip sliding away, and he goes back underwater again. We left Job off at the end of chapter 14 in utter despair. But even then, we see his steadfastness. He has refused to curse God. I read Psalm 42 this week, and I thought of Job. It begins famously like this, as a deer pants for the water. You know that one? This is what it says. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Would you join me in prayer as we get started? Lord, when we are cast down, when we are in turmoil, when we are in tears, would you, the God of all hope, remind us of your goodness and your steadfast love, your kind purposes and your grace. Please give us eyes to see you as we walk now through Job chapter 15 through 21. And we pray this in the precious name of our Savior and Redeemer, Jesus. Amen. So... First, we're going to walk through some chapter summaries rather quickly, watching for some highlights of hope and some lowlights of despair. Kind of like when you ask uh, your family member at the dinner table, tell me your highs and lows for today. 
We're going to see how these chapters point to Jesus, and that's the second part of this message. So is Job 15 a lot of hot air? Eliphaz begins his second speech by accusing Job of eating wind and then belching hot air. He's saying, Job, your words are not wise. Your words are wind. They're useless. They're sinful. You may think that you know more than us, but you are all wrong, and you do not fear God as you claim. You're doing away with the fear of God. Your own mouth condemns you, and not I. And then he asks ten rhetorical questions in his quest to ridicule Job. I found it ironic that in verse 8, do you see what he asks there? Have you listened in the counsel of God? Well, we did get to listen in, didn't we, in chapters 1 and 2? And we know about that conversation between God and Satan. We know that Job is not suffering because of his sin. Now Eliphaz goes on to tear into Job, calling him abominable and corrupt, a man who drinks injustice like water, in verse 6. And the end result is described vividly in the rest of the chapter. The wicked suffer throughout their life. His aim is to get Job to see himself, own up to his sin, and repent. And Eliphaz is so focused on winning the debate that he doesn't even consider that his counsel does not apply to Job. But he's in full-on attack mode. And then in Job 16 and 17, we see Job's response. Job begins his reply with some verbal attacks of his own, claiming that the three friends are miserable comforters. What an oxymoron. Their attempts to comfort him result in more misery. And so Job asks, when are you going to cease with all the hot air, the worthless words, he says in verse 3. He says, shall windy words have an end? Or what provokes you that you answer? The more you talk, the more pain you inflict. And they have many windy words which is what Eliphaz accused Job of in his previous speech. I think Job could have punched Eliphaz in the face. He doesn't, but he comes close. <laughs> in verse 7, Job expresses how exhausted he is. And once more, he laments. He feels that God has turned against him. He's done all he can think of to do. Verse 16, he's repented of anything he can think of. He's spiritually drained without hope because he feels that God is against him. And yet we see a glimmer of hope in the midst of the despair and his tears. And perhaps you know what it's like to experience that despair one day, feeling alone in your suffering, discouraged in the darkness, and then to experience renewed hope and faith in God the next day. Now in verse 19, he said, Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. Now back in chapter 9, verse 20, Job longed for an arbiter. You remember that? Someone that would bring Job and God together to reconcile them, to bring them back into a relationship. And here, he's confident of the one in heaven who will speak up for him. And, oh, sisters, on this side of the cross, we know that there is one mediator between God and man, 
the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. That's 1 Timothy 2.5. It is Jesus who is interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. Now, Job's hope doesn't last long. At the end of chapter 16, he's talking about his impending death. And then the rest of Job's response in chapter 17 focuses again on how hopeless he sees his situation. He is full of despair, and he hopes that his friends will not have the last word. He asks in verse 15, Where then is my hope? Who will see my hope? So even in this despair, there's a glimmer of hope. He mentions hope three times in three verses. So why keep talking about hope if you've tr truly lost all hope? Christopher Ashe helped me by writing this. He said, there's a paradox of faith in Job's eloquent expressions of despair. In their very reasonings, there is hope. Although he experiences the felt hostility of God, he knows he's innocent. His clear conscience testifies that to his heart. And he cannot believe that a clear conscience will ultimately not be vindicated. So he deduces with the wonderful logic of faith that God will intercede for him before God. Now in Job 18, we hear from Bildad. Bildad launches into a scathing response with four rhetorical questions. My paraphrase is this. Oh, Job, close your mouth. Watch what you say, because we are not stupid cows. Stop thinking that the world revolves around you. Okay, cows is in there. Cattle, right? So apparently Bildad is desperate to convince Job that his theology is right. So he resorts to fear tactics now. Terrible things happen to the wicked who do not repent. Bad things happen to bad people, period. So his message is the same. He only changes the metaphors. So this chapter paints a portrait of hell that is terrifying and true. Hell is all the things that Bildad preaches. It is a horrible place of total darkness eternal torment for the wicked who have not repented. But Bildad is wrong. We know that from the end of the story. God says he's wrong. Why? Because he is misapplying this truth to Job, who is not wicked. And God does not fit into a tight little box. He doesn't operate with fixed mathematical formulas like do bad, get bad. He's not a predictable, deistic, robotic ruler. Now, Bildad is supposedly a wise teacher, but he is ruthless and awful here in this chapter. In verses 14 through 20 of chapter 18, he tells Job what Job already knows. And then he has the gall to say this, he has no posterity or progeny among his people and no survivor where he used to live. Connect the dots, Job. Your legacy has vanished with the death of your children. As Job 18 closes, God is finally mentioned, but not grace. Instead, Bildad thrusts daggers into the heart of Job with a stinging rebuke, claiming that Job does not know God. 
And then we come to Job 19, Job's response. And he says, how long will you torment me and break me into pieces with words? Job doesn't understand. He has no public scandalous sin, so he pleads with them, stop torturing me. His friends don't have a case against him. Their only evidence, Job says, is in verse 5. It's his disgrace. It's his suffering. Again, they believe that since he is suffering, he must have sinned to cause it. And Job says no. In verse 8, he says, it is God who has hedged him in with a net around him. And in verse 9, God has stripped him of his dignity. In verse 10, God has broken every aspect of his life, so he has nothing left. His hope is gone, pulled up like a tree. Job feels God's wrath, verse 11, and he believes that he is under attack from God and his armies, in verse 12. And if God is your enemy, how can you have any hope that he is going to come to your rescue? Job describes his physical pain as well. He's literally skin and bones, in verse 20. And he's been abandoned by everyone closest to him. He begs for mercy and compassion from his friends. He says, have mercy on me, have mercy on me, oh my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. He's saying, why do you feel the need to wound me more? Isn't God's affliction enough? Isn't my physical suffering enough for you? Why do you feel the need to make things worse for me? Why do you add to my emotional pain by attacking me? And then he cries out in verse 23 and 24, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. So Job thought he would die soon and that no one would remember him, that his horrible friends would write on his tombstone, here lies Job, the scumbag who got what he deserved. No way he's going to rest in peace. Well, we know that he was not wicked as charged by Bildad. He longed for vindication to have a written record of the truth that he was blameless and upright, a man who feared God. And I guess the sheer fact that we are doing this study on the book of Job is testimony to his desire being fulfilled. Then, having, despite having just said a few verses back in verse 10 that God had yanked up like a tree any hope he had left, we see this fresh little sprout popping up through the darkness. In the middle of his despair, we see some hope emerging. Did anybody hear the strains of Handel's Messiah here? Some have argued that this might be one of the most recognizable verses in the Bible. Why don't you read it out loud with me? For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. So people living before Christ had little clear revelation of what happens after death. Job was not thinking about Jesus' death and resurrection and the hope that that gives to us. 
Although he didn't understand fully, though, he did believe that one day he would see God and he would be vindicated. What an amazing faith. He was longing for an arbiter, a mediator, his redeemer, and we know that that is Jesus. And more on that in a few minutes. Let's finish Job 20 through 21. Job has pleaded for mercy from his friends, and now he ends his response with a warning. Stop harassing me with these false accusations, or you might face God's wrath. One commentator said, this is one of the few times that Job pushes back against his friends by bringing into view the judgment of God. In other words, not only are the friends wrong, but they are doing great spiritual harm to Job and to the cause of God for which they will yet pay the consequences. So Job still wants to hear from God, but instead he gets more zingers from Zophar. Chapter 20. Now Zophar speaks for the second and the final time, and mercifully he appears to be running out of words. We're about at the end of the second round of these speeches, and I want to encourage you to hang in there because next week we only have five chapters. Okay? Zophar does not acknowledge Job's hope for a redeemer. He does not budge from his understanding of how God works. He keeps singing the song that never ends. It just goes on and on, my friend. Did your kids sing that when they were little? Well, Zophar is terrifyingly right that God has ordained punishment for the wicked. That is, ultimately, unless we repent, that is our destiny. But he, like his comrades, draws the wrong conclusions about Job. You saw in your lesson this week that Jesus himself warned of the dangers of sin and the judgment of God. But we also need reminders of God's grace for us as sinners and sufferers. Sisters, we need to remember that Paul did not put a period after in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin are de is death, period. That is absolutely true, but it goes on, doesn't it? The, what is the rest of the verse? But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So cling to that. Now, Job 21. His so-called friends have insulted him. They've scorned him. They've doubted him. Will Job be providing more fuel for the fire, more words for his friends to mock? He invites them, in verse 3, to mock on. That sounds really modern to me. But in his excruciating sorrow, he pleads for sympathy instead of more words. In verses 5 and 6. And then he asks another big why question. And here's my paraphrase. So tell me, you experts... Why do the wicked prosper? Can't you see that many of them live long and happy and comfortable lives, appearing to be getting away with their sins? Everyone can see that. Christopher Ashe said, It is utterly stupid and deeply hurtful to suppose that we can deduce from someone's situation in this age the true state of his or her heart. A bad person may enjoy a good life, and a good person may suffer the pain of a bad life. Only the end will reveal the heart. So we live in a broken world still. 
a very sad world in which we sin, we are sinned against, we grieve, we suffer. Job had lost everything, all of his stuff, all of his children, and his health. But in his laments, we get a hint that perhaps the most painful thing to Job is how he feels that God has forsaken him. You remember how Satan had accused the Lord of keeping a hedge of protection around Job? I think this is one of the things that points us to Jesus. And you have a chart in your handout that has a comparison here. You remember what Satan accused the Lord of doing? He said, you surround Job with blessings. Of course he'll love you. Remove those blessings and he will curse you. And so now we've seen wave after wave of tragedy now destroy that hedge of protection that was around Job to the point where Job is now viewing that as a prison or a net he feels walled in. And then in chapter 16, verse 7, he says, God has worn me out and shriveled me up. This is a picture of what Jesus did for us in the incarnation, leaving the comforts of heaven, being born of Mary, no more hedge around Jesus. Philippians 2 tells us that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, Jesus had no earthly house to call home. Even his family didn't believe in him and his followers dwindled until he went resolutely for the joy set before him to the cross forsaken. Job said in chapter 16, verses 9 through 11, he has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. Men have gaped at me with their mouth. They have struck me insolently on the cheek. They mass themselves together against me. God gives me up to the ungodly and casts me into the hands of the wicked. Doesn't this sound like Jesus? The Roman soldiers hurled mocking abuse at him. They beat him. They slapped him in the cheeks. The Gentiles and the Jews massed together against him. Job says he has set me up as a target. Job experiences this kind of hostility and loneliness. And likewise, Jesus did not suffer because he deserved punishment, but because God had a purpose. These dreadful speeches here in round two help us to grasp the horrific suffering that Jesus endured for us, all because God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And for our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might get the righteousness of God. Do you recall the term that the Lord used to describe Job way back in the prologue? He called him my servant. Does this sound like Jesus? Our, our suffering servant is what Isaiah called him. Behold my servant whom I, I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. That's from Matthew 12, quoting Isaiah. Now Job 16 points to Jesus as well. In verse 20, his friends scorned him, whose eyes poured out tears to God and no violence in his hands, verse 17, and whose prayer was pure. 
Jesus suffered as the truly innocent one, and he bore the wrath and the hostility of God for us. Jesus experienced all the terrors and the torment that we deserve, and he did it to redeem sinners. The book of Job really makes no sense without connecting it to the cross of Jesus. Romans 5, 8 tells us, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from what? From the wrath of God. And that's Job's hope, remember? He was hoping that God would intercede for him before God. So we have God the Son coming to bear the wrath so that we don't have to take that. So now we get to this section. I want to spend some time on this word redeemer. Job proclaimed three beautiful truths, speaking much more than he realized. Number one, we have a living redeemer. I want to unpack a little bit what this word means. This Hebrew word is ga'el. It's a family member. It's a relative who would stand in for you when you're not able to stand on your own. You might remember in Exodus, God redeemed the people of Israel with his outstretched arm. Or in Ruth, Boaz redeems Ruth from her poverty. This is what Jesus does when he redeems us. We are the spiritually impoverished. He redeems us from sin. So our Heavenly Father sent his own Son to the cross so that we might become children of God, brothers and sisters of Christ. So by being our Redeemer, he makes us his family, kinsmen with him. This is the gospel. This is redemption. Jesus is our kinsman Redeemer who has paid the penalty for our sin. He has forgiven us. He has ransomed us. But this is not only just a purchase, a buying back. There's also a component of avenging death. If you've studied Leviticus, you know that this is part of what a kinsman redeemer does. So let's say you were murdered. One of the duties of a kinsman redeemer would be to avenge or to punish your killer. You're dead. You can't stand up for yourself, right? Do you remember what Colossians 2 tells us? You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And then it goes on. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Your Redeemer not only avenges your death by his victory at the cross, but he gives you new life. In Galatians, we read that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And he did that in, in Galatians 4 to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. 1 Peter 1.3 tells us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a, not a dead hope, 
a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There it is, the living and forever hope through Jesus, our living Redeemer. Christ is our hope in this life and in death. He is our hope. Now, in Handel's Messiah, Job 19, I know that my Redeemer liveth, is held up right next to 1 Corinthians 15, 20, which says, For now is Christ risen from the dead, the first fruits of them that sleep. So Handel made that connection between Job 19 and Jesus' resurrection. Number two, our Redeemer will stand on the earth. Because our Redeemer, Jesus, ever lives and intercedes for us, he will be that witness who stands up for us, pleading on our behalf, testifying that we have his righteousness when we are in him. He is our advocate. Job longed for vindication, and that day will come for believers, even if it's not in this life. Trust his timing and wait on the Lord. And then number three, Job says he will see him with his own eyes. This was Job's confidence, and it can be ours as well. Now we see dimly, but oh, that will be glory for us when we see our Savior face to face in all of his glory. So I want to encourage you as we wrap up a few things, okay? Embrace God's sovereignty in suffering. Strengthen your heart by reminding yourself that nothing happens to us except what God sends for his good purposes. God is not only sovereign, but he is good, he is kind, he is wise, he is loving. J.I. Packer said, to know that nothing happens in God's world apart from God's will may frighten the godless, but it stabilizes the saints. And Randy Alcorn wrote, Our sovereign God weaves millions of details into our lives. He may have one big reason or a thousand little ones for bringing a certain person or success or failure or disease or accident into our lives. His reasons often fall outside our present lines of sight. If God uses cancer or a car accident to conform us to himself, then regardless of the human, demonic, or natural forces involved, he will be glorified. And then number two, accept that we may never know the whys of our suffering. Although we got a glimpse behind the heavenly curtain, Job never knew the rest of the story. As believers, we know that our suffering is not owing to God's wrath. Jesus, our Redeemer, took God's wrath on himself when he died on the cross. There is no condemnation to those of us who are in Christ. So whatever God's purpose is, trust him. Paul wrote, For we were utterly burdened beyond our strength, that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Now listen for the purpose. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. 
on him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. That's First Corinthians uh, or Second Corinthians one verse eight. God wants us to trust in him completely. He is the one who raises the dead, and like Job, we can say. I know my Redeemer lives, and I will see him. So whatever our trials, would we say with Paul, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, many of us are getting older, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So number three, trust his heart. I think this is so closely related to the why questions that we have. Is God for me or against me? I think we all know the correct Sunday school answer to that, right? Well, of course he's for us. We can quote Romans 8.28, right? He works everything together for our good, even our failures. Pastor Nick encouraged us on Sunday. He said, have you ever thought of Romans 8.28 in light of your own sin problems? For those who love God, all things, and he said, I think that means all things, work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, which means that even when you stumble in unbelief, the Lord who has ordained your salvation will redeem that failure for his glory and for your good. So trust his heart. God truly is for us. He will hold you fast. You are not alone. Job felt forsaken in his suffering. Perhaps you feel alone. God will hold you steadfastly. Our living Redeemer, our sovereign Savior, will sustain us and keep us. He who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1.6. If God has called you, he will keep you. He will cause you to endure steadfastly through suffering, all through his all-sufficient grace. That's a gift of grace for us. So cling to God's promises. He will never leave you or forsake you. He will strengthen you. He will help you. He will uphold you. He has all authority, and he's promised to be with us to the end. And he does work everything together for good. And so lastly, comfort others and extend the grace of Jesus to them. Job said in chapter 16, verses 4 and 5, that if the tables were turned, his words and actions would be the opposite of his friends. He would bring strength and encouragement to the suffering rather than treating them like enemies. We also see this wonderfully displayed at the cross, where in dying, Jesus cared for his grieving mother. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 1.4, Comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this book. Thank you for your purposes in Job's life. 
and for keeping him steadfast in suffering. Thank you that you, just like the people of, of Israel out of the Exodus, you have led in your steadfast love the people that you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Thank you for sending your precious son, Jesus, to redeem us. Thank you for giving us hope because of Jesus, everlasting life with Jesus, who is our only hope in life and in death. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.